Hello and welcome to another Sports Next Door podcast. My name is Owen. Today is Friday, April 2nd. Happy Good Friday to everyone out there. And I'm joined, as I always am, by my neighbor, Max. How's it going, my friend? Pretty well. Happy Dead Jesus Day to yourself. (laughs) I'm battling allergies, sleep deprivation, and back pain with coffee, decongestants, and hot showers. So hopefully that goes well for me on all fronts, though bit of mutual conflict there between the coffee and the congestion, I think, but no other way to get it done this early in the morning for me and extra sleep deprivation, which we'll get into shortly. Yes, I feel the sleep deprivation and the back pain. I have been battling procrastination as well. That's a big one I've been battling this week. A lot of 2K yesterday. I got a pink diamond Vucevic in one of my mystery packs, which was a pretty nice pickup on 2k are you just Um, building in vc at this point or how are you paying for those packs oh i want i got it in uh like the triple threat what yeah man i got like a freaking bronze player on that well like i've gotten quite a few but one of them i actually pulled something he's my first like big pull okay um i also got a double take pack from a locker code and I pulled an amethyst Hito Turkaloo who was when he was on the Raptors. So we'll yeah. take that. We'll take that. I, um, I have that one as well. Okay. Okay. Building like an all-time great Raptors squad, like with players that only have the Raptors on a logo. So we got like the diamond Demar, nice. um, the hide of Bismack, Gasol, Trent, there's like a Kawhi one I want, and then the collection's almost complete, save for like the stupid expensive uh, McGrady and Carter. Yeah, I've been grinding triple threat though. I think I'm up to 120 wins now. Uh, yeah, it's. I don't know. I find it's. I I also got a diamond uh, shoe, mm-hmm. which was or diamond contract, which oh. was unreal. Yeah. So I just have Vucevic locked in there and I'm just abusing him being able to play every single game in triple threat. That's lovely. I got bored of my team and like sold it out and I'm trying to figure out how to build it back. It's such a, when you have like 300 plus K in the, my team points, I just don't want it to go away, but then I feel like it's wasted sitting there. But then if I go big on a player and then that player's value drops, I get so mad. Like, I lost out on, I think, 70K or something buying like a pink diamond Steve Nash that dropped for 100K. And like three days later, it was trading at 30 or something. Dude, you would love NBA Top Shot. <laughs> it's literally what you do, but it's with real money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe I should. But I, I probably yeah. already am wasting enough time on one market. I was able to secure another pre-order pack. Uh, on Top Shot, so maybe two weeks from now we can do another pack opening. I imagine it's it's a lot of those common cards, and there won't be anything too exciting. But that Giannis was was got me a nice couple bucks, so uh, definitely something to look forward in a couple weeks' time. Let's get to sports, shall we? Uh, yeah. And we are going to kick off the podcast with some tennis talk, as one of our Canadians was able to survive the week and give us something to talk about. Uh, we'll have some combat corner. Some baseball banner for opening day uh, and a great game for the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, some hockey talk, a little bit of basketball, and, and we'll finish up with uh, a different story that is related to sports, but I wanted to talk about briefly. It's probably more pertinent for those 
in Ontario, uh, Canada, not Ontario, California. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get there when we get there. But for now, Max, I got to say, I forgot how much fun it is to watch a physically dominant woman's tennis player in like Bianca Andreescu. She's just an animal and so much emotion and uh, so much mental toughness. And I really forgot how much I enjoy watching her play because it's been 15 months since she's really been consistently hammering out it, hammering it out on the tennis circuit. So uh, I guess I'll throw it to you to kind of kick us off. And on some of the stuff you saw over the quarterfinals, over the semis, because she's into the final now at the Miami Open. Come on, Bianca Andreescu. Andreescu going to the Miami Open finals, looking to complete kind of the comeback in her career. And she's shown us so many different things over this Miami Open tournament. Uh, I was kind of taking notes last night just to stay awake and stay focused because every time there was a commercial break, I had to just reset mentally and try and stay sharp. I, I knew what I was getting into starting the semifinal match when it was starting so late. I was like, there's no way Bianca doesn't go three sets. You're in it for the long haul if you start watching. And sure enough, that's what happened. It's really to what you're saying, just the mental fortitude. She's never out of it, even when you think she might be. She finds a way and she does it through different shots at different times and just pulls you into becoming this engrossed spectator who can't pull away even if it's 2 a.m and you're dead tired and you've got to record a podcast the next day you just must must watch television is bianca right now and i'm so happy i've been watching you let's maybe start with the quarterfinals and then we can talk the semis which i think we were both going a little cross-eyed watching the leafs and bianca at the same time i don't know what held your attention more yeah, I, I think what I would try and do was I would watch Leafs and then uh, I would mute them and put on the tennis anytime I saw a break in the action and or like a commercial break and uh, then I'd switch over to Bianca. But it was really hard to go back to the Leafs once they had grabbed kind of a, a two-goal lead and, and Bianca was in the midst of that second set powering towards the third, obviously. Both of these matches over the last week have gone the distance and really impressed with how she's grinded through because this is her first tournament where she's had to go back to back to back nights, uh, which is probably putting a lot of strain on her body, which hasn't been used to this kind of punishment in a while. I wanted to start off by just like going to one of the lines the commentators said during the quarterfinal where she makes every match feel like an event. Uh, and I thought that was just a great line because of the emotion and, and you let off your... Uh, pardon the podcast she screams come on every time she hits a big winner or uh, wins a big point and and it's it's just so much fun to root for um, both the matches one of the big things that stood out to me is how physical it was uh, the women's game obviously like you're gonna have longer rallies a lot of times just because there's not that same finishing power but like I don't know Bianca and, and Tormo and then I guess uh Makari or Sakari uh, last night, like they're hard hitters, man. And they were, she, especially they were attacking each other's second serves, a lot of breaks in that Tormo match. Like I think the second set started with uh, seven consecutive breaks and uh, they just, 
really pressuring each other to make sure that that serve was solid. And uh, when they were hitting, they were putting everything into the ball and, and you had to be right on every single shot. Otherwise you're going to get sent going the other way. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I felt like Tormo was playing a little looser as it got towards the end and kind of letting Bianca have the onus to dictate the rallies, which is one of the notes I had on this match. It really reminded me at times the rallies of uh, Bianca's match against Xiaosu Wei, where she lost in the Australian Open second round, I believe, except a lot more dangerous from Tormo in that like if Bianca left a ball hanging too long with a bit of a lob, then the putaways were way more deadly and threatening. But I was really happy to see Bianca pull this win out when I started to feel like, man, these extended rallies where her opponent just will not make a mistake and Bianca has to find a game winner. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, <laughs> she really doesn't like two set victories i guess because they just don't seem to happen very often and i do have mixed feelings about that wondering is it great for her to be playing so much tennis after such a long layoff and getting back into the swing of things or is this the same thing that led to the injury in the first place and we're heading right back on those tracks i do worry a little but that quarterfinals match fantastic especially when you see her leaving her feet a couple times in that match, either stretching out, uh, going the opposite way, or she had that one play where she volleyed the backhand into the net and fell over. And that was a tough one. She was not happy. She almost smashed her racket after that one. Uh, you could see she was in her head a little bit. And, and uh, that stemmed from a time violation that was called in that second set which was really, really bizarre. It was an interesting moment because you could tell she was really, really mad, but had to keep her composure. I think that she said something along the lines of like, that has never, ever happened to me in a match that I played, even if I made a toss and, and didn't hit the ball on that first toss and the serve. She was like, I've never had that happen. And the, and the uh, ref just sat there in the chair and was like, I just call the rules, Bianca. <laughs> it's just a fun, funny little exchange. And Definitely was in her head a little bit after that, but a couple games in, she got back in her rhythm serving. Uh, that probably contributed to some of the breaks both ways. But uh, in the end, I guess like the the shot I had to highlight specifically in that quarterfinals was the drop shot. Every time she pulled it out, it was beautiful. Like the touch is really, really grand. And uh, every time she hits one of those, it's it's well timed, and often it's bouncing twice. Like the her opponents won't even get a racket on it yeah what i like about the uh mental fortitude after that uh violation is that it never became an issue again i remember watching early in this tournament uh felix was up against a guy herbert i believe from france who got in his own head early on this like bickering with the ref hey you're you're starting the timer too early you're just and the ref it's the same playbook all the umps have i'm just following the rules and he just every break in action was bickering with the ref over it and then ultimately just lost his it was a tight game until he had one too many bickers and just lost his focus and that's when felix took it so nice to see bianca not make that mistake and yeah the drop shot's beautiful the the most consistent issue I've seen with her throughout this tournament has been 
the finish after the drop shots sometimes or on the smashes just you've seen her miss a lot of putaways close at the net um and i do feel like she's starting to get in her own head a little on them like second guessing okay i need to make this in i need to make this in and when you start thinking about the shots sometimes those are the ones that miss the most consistently so i guess i can segue a little into the semi-final match which like I said, I was taking crazy notes on just to try and stay focused, stay in it at 1 a.m. But it was a really close, tight game. Uh, all So much respect and credit to her opponent, Sakari, who had just come off blowing out Naomi Osaka, who, for my money, is the best women's player in the world right now, snapping a 23-match uh, winning streak of hers. And this... To me, it was a physical battle in the sense that Bianca had to stay in it, but the clear advantage lay with Sakari. This girl was so fast, so explosive, and so strong. You could just see her frame was so wiry. Like you don't see a lot of tennis players that are that like defined muscle tone. And I thought maybe it cost her a little in the shot like she couldn't stay as strong on the shots she had to take breaks throughout the match and like let up a little but when she was hitting hard it was such a tough puzzle to crack because she could stand five feet behind the baseline returning Bianca's best ground strokes and almost threaten with her defense like hey I'm right in this rally if you let up for a second I'm gonna take the onus back and press you so Bianca had to deal with that this girl was so fast that I think it really held Bianca back on the drop shots. She was taking them way less. And then when she did take them, she had quite a few that fell like a foot short or so, like not inches misses, but big ones, just because she knew if I don't hit play this drop shot perfectly, this girl's going to get it and probably get the point. So against that physical threat and with one of her key weapons taken away she had to find a different way to win and she had some different things she when uh sakari wasn't on top of her service game because there were games she just killed and was getting like aces on second serves and just giving bianca no chance when she put the first serve in but then there were games where she wasn't quite in her rhythm as much and bianca really took advantage well um aggressively returning the second serves and getting I think in Sakari's head on those second serves a little too um but man every time twice I thought uh, Bianca had the momentum in the first set and the second set like she got a break she pulled away and Sakari just clawed her way right back in like you see often in tennis that momentum builds and no Sakari just would like force her own break on Bianca's serve and uh, then like return to serving excellence and the biggest run of momentum throughout the match was for Sakari in the second set after she reversed some I think like a 4-1 3-1 lead Bianca had 3-1 and then won the set 6-3 but it's like you said Bianca just battles she's an animal and she doesn't give up it was looking bad for her early in that third set um Sakari got a break she was serving well and it, the commentator said like it's going to take something special and she almost made it look a little more pedestrian than like wow what an exhilarating perfect play but 
it speaks to the mental fortitude. She just never gave up, made her shots, got back in there and uh, forced a tie break after I thought it was really over. She gave up a second break point by, it was one of those sequences where I think Bianca served really well. It looked like it was going to be the point and Sakari just showed that fantastic speed to just get the ball in but she got it pretty shallow Bianca had the chance to put away a volley and I don't think she was expecting the return to come in so a little slower on her reaction than normal probably but just flubbed the volley at the net and then double faulted to give up the second break I thought it might be over but she broke back flawlessly um serving really aggressively and then I love she got right back in there with the volley and uh I think my favorite moment of the match she forced a drop shot charged it where she knew where the response to the drop shot was coming before it was even played aggressively cut it before it bounced and gave like a come on before the ball even hit the net but then sure enough it bounces right on the line and in um forces a shootout and she finally pulled away in the shootout she built some momentum early uh she had like a fantastic return and then uh sakari gifted her a put away which really she made almost no unforced errors throughout the match till then so i feel like the war of nerves and the mental fortitude of bianca finally got to her a little she might have choked a bit playing a bit worse in that last tie break than she had throughout the match but yeah, I think that was enough of a ramble from me. Yeah, I, I I, think that's the thing with Bianca, though, is at the age of 19, she had to go into a full house U.S. Open final against the greatest women's tennis player that's ever lived and beat her, right? Like, I don't know if there's a match that gets any bigger than that. And so when you're thinking about, like, these tough points or these, like, tough moments, she's already had, like, a pinnacle moment in a, and anyone's like the greatest moment of anyone's like tennis career. And she had it so early on that it's like, how can, how can she just, how can she feel any more pressure? So that I think is, it's a good like point of relativity to compare to because she's just, if you, if you've done that, you can build up that mental toughness at, at such a high level that everything else seems not as, there's just not as great a pressure in those moments. And, and you definitely see that shine through when she's had to battle back from 40 love in, in certain sets and having to come up with big breaks of serve. And uh, she's been able to do that. And hopefully she can carry this momentum into her next match. She's going up against the number one ranked player in the world, Ashley Barty. Um, it should be excellent, excellent tennis. Once again, uh, just hoping, <laughs> hoping that her body can hold out. Uh, and, and if it does, I imagine this one will also go the distance, but, um, my hopes aren't there. Obviously I want her to do well, but I can just see this one being like a really taxing final against the, probably the highest class player she's had to play since coming back from the injury. So I could also see this one going pretty quickly against her. So just, I think if she stays in the match, she's got ton of potential to win it it's just making sure it doesn't get away from her early because then she's in a bunch of trouble yeah you she just has that clutch gene that factor when it really matters to find a way to scrounge up points I feel like she's constantly making reads in the match like putting away a 
couple shots to save in your back pocket for the moments that count but first you have to get to those moments that count and it's going to be she's shown us so many different looks throughout this Miami Open it's going to be really interesting to see how she deals with the backhand slice of Ash Barty which I can really um I caught a bit of Barty's match yesterday and she did a really good job with that shot of just nullifying her opponent's offense like throwing her off rhythm hitting it a couple times and then as soon as like a put away was there taking it so Bianca had a great backhand throughout the last game and I thought like I was saying she pulled that backhand out like forcing Sakari on it to take a couple of key points so I'm more optimistic about uh, this matchup going in after seeing Bianca's backhand in her last game um, but she's going to have to deal with some fantastic serving, that really tricky shot. And again, going back to like the Shaosu way and uh, the quarterfinal matchup, she's going to have, I think, a lot of those rallies where her opponent is just not killing the ball, but placing it difficultly and consistently. And Bianca has to deal with that and find a way to generate her own offense, which sometimes she will struggle with and start to give up some unforced errors but Bardi will also do that at times so it should be fantastic if it goes three sets I'd, this would be such a great run for her hopefully having today off really helps refresh the uh, body definitely all right best of luck to Bianca I think it's great timing that it'll be tomorrow night there's no there's no Leafs game tomorrow night uh, as the Leafs play tonight, and we'll get there shortly. But we will take a quick break and come back for, I guess, some baseball we'll do next segment. We are back, just like the MLB. The season opener happened yesterday, and Toronto Blue Jays off to a good start. Yes, sir. Uh, a four-hour game that was a pitching duel. So <laughs> if, uh, if I just... Baseball needs to find ways to get their game shorter, man, because if it's a game where it's a pitcher's duel, usually those games go quick and this game goes four hours. Obviously we get some free baseball uh, going into the 10th inning and the MLB is continuing with their rule that a runner has to start on second to start extra innings, uh, which I like because you want to make sure that game is going quickly and you don't want those 16 inning games. There's something about the games that can be fun, but for the most part, you want to avoid injuries of players. And so I do actually, I'm on board with that rule. But before we get there, uh, just want to touch on some notes. George Springer, Robbie Ray, uh, Nate Pearson, all starting the year on the IL, which is tough news for the Jays, especially their big free agent, George Springer. But you want to make sure that that oblique injury is healed completely before he's back uh, because he's a long-term investment. And so uh, good to keep him uh, healthy. I'm sure this off day today will be helpful. Uh, it's always weird at the beginning of the season. A lot of teams will play and then they have an off day the second day of the season. Really weird, but uh, that's just an extra day for George to get healthy. And if the Jays can pull out wins like this one without him in the lineup, just imagine what it's going to be like when he's back. So we jump into the game. Uh, the notes I have here, Vladdy reaches base his first three times up to the plate, a solid hit up the middle, and then two walks. Uh, Teoscar Hernandez hits an absolute bomb to left. Uh, and you've got uh, Gary Sanchez, who had a really poor year last year for the Yankees with the, his two-run shot. That was the only runs that the Yankees scored in this game as Hunjin Ryu and Garrett Cole 
pitchers battle. They both go five plus innings. Uh, Ryu gives up two runs. Gary Cole gives up one. Uh, but both were really, really sensational in their first outings and really fun to see the contrasting styles. Garrett Cole is more of a power pitcher. His fastball can touch 99 and just a wicked slider. Whereas Ryu is more of uh, high 80s, low 90s. He mixes up. He's got six or seven different pitches that he can kind of shape the ball with. And he's always trying to keep the hitters off balance. It seemed like the Yankees were sitting on his changeup. Uh, And he was getting them out with fastballs that were like 88, but just they were swinging late because they were waiting on something much slower. Uh, So really interesting and fun to watch the pitching battle with those two contrasting styles, because nowadays everyone is more so a power thrower. And so nice to see Ryu doing it the old fashioned way. It was a very tight game all the way through and defense definitely played a key part and something that not a lot of fans consider when they think of baseball, think pitching and hitting uh, Kevin Biggio getting, he's going to have the opportunity to be the full-time third baseman this season. And he's got great range and he made a couple great plays. I do have some concerns with the arm power uh, just because some of the throws he's making the top tier third baseman in the league can make those throws without having to hop the ball, but his seemed to come up a little bit short on some of his throws. And so something definitely to monitor because that can lead to some extra base runners for the Jays down the line in the season. So just making sure that uh, if Cavan doesn't have that arm strength, then you might have to look at other options at third because he's a guy who can play anywhere in the field and anywhere uh, on the diamond. However, he makes a huge play in the bottom of the ninth. Yankees have a man on third uh, and man on first with one out. And DJ LeMahieu grounds the ball to third. Biggio, instead of trying to force a double play that might not uh, actually get done and then the game-winning run scores, he goes home. They tag the runner out at the plate. Uh, Game stays tied at two. And then they're able to get the final out of the inning and send it to extras. In extras, Randall Grichuk. Uh, he's so clutch, man. He's already got 39 game-winning RBIs in his career. And last season in 2020, he had so many big hits for the Jays on their playoff run. Uh, and he hits a first pitch double over the head of Aaron Judge, who really mess- misread the ball off the bat. Uh, a lot of memes on the internet saying if only he was a little bit taller. I think he's like 6'7 already. <laughs> uh, and he, miss- he misses the, the read on that. Jonathan Davis scores, the Jays take the lead, uh, and then Julian Merriweather, who was projected to be a starter, he came to us in the Marcus Stroman trade, I believe, or no, sorry, the Josh Donaldson trade, and he came out, not typically a closer, but they needed him to throw leverage outs, and he was dealing, he got Aaron Hicks looking, and, and then struck out the next two batters in sequence to end the game, and the Blue Jays in extra innings, a a spot they were quite familiar with as of last year. They played in a ton of extra inning games. Uh, They do so once again, and they pull out the victory against the Yankees, whose fans were absolutely burning down Twitter yesterday in anger because of uh, the lack of offense that they saw from their guys. This was the team you had projected to win first in the division, eh? Yes, because the Yankees always have a ton of top talent. They've got mashers in Aaron Judge, Giancarlo Stanton. Like, uh, Clint Frazier is batting ninth in that order, and he torched the Jays yesterday. He was really solid in the box. So definitely a lot of potential for this Yankees team. 
I think the big rub that they're starting to get on them consistently from other fans of other teams is that they don't have much of a clutch gene. They've lost a lot of big games in playoff series to the Houston Astros, uh, most notably. And, and now, I mean, it's the first game of the season. People can overreact always. But another clutch moment where they met on first third, you have the two-time AL uh, hitting champ in DJ LeMahieu, who I had picked as my dark horse for MVP, and they can't score. And so just, I'm never going to complain because if you are not from New York, everyone hates the Yankees. So every time they lose is a, is a good day. And so we'll take our win and move on because uh, it's always good to get wins on the road and the Jays will be playing on the road <laughs> all season. So uh, yeah. Good job for the Blue Jays. 1-0 on the season. Looking good. We're going to move off the diamond to some other news. Uh, Francisco Lindor, the star shortstop who was previously a part of the Cleveland baseball team, signs a 10-year, $340 million contract with the New York Mets. Uh, Owner Steve Cohen, not afraid to dish out the big bucks, and Lindor will be a New York Met for a long time. He's an awesome player, both sides of the ball. Uh, great offensive shortstop, which is really valuable in the league where shortstops are generally there for their defense. He can also play great defense, uh, a great signing for the Mets, and and this team's really starting to come together well. Uh, and, and hopefully Lindor now has the incentive to have an awesome season. The last thing I want to touch on is, is just <laughs> despite all the fun of opening day baseball is there's always going to be a dumb rule or something that happens where people are going, this is why the game is not advancing it. Cody Bellinger hits a two-run bomb against the Colorado Rockies yesterday. Uh, It was close. It goes right to the warning track, and the left fielder jumps, and the ball just goes through his glove and over. So Justin Turner, who was on first base, actually is worried about the ball being caught because it's caught. He has to run back to first. So so he's not sure. So he starts running back just to be safe, right? Because if it's a home run, then you just go. But he goes back, and Cody Bellinger actually passes him on the base paths because I guess he wasn't paying attention. He's watching his home run. Um, and so because of that, if you pass the runner in front of you on the base pass in, in Major League Baseball, the rule is that you are out. And so that's so dumb. So Coley Bellinger actually ends up a home run. is take, That's two runs off the board for the Dodgers. Justin Turner's back on first. It's a, just another out and the next guy up. If you hit a home run, it shouldn't matter. You should have like 10 people running on the bases with you. A home run is, is a home run. He should just be able to go like I, baseball. Make yourself more fun, please. That rule is too specific and uh, I'm not a fan, but I guess. Yeah. So what if he does catch it then? And you have this situation where, I mean, Bellinger's already out. So what happens? Does he just have to like, because so he's going to be in the way from the yeah. player trying to stay safe. eh? So if the ball is caught there, then Bellinger just has to get out of the way of the play. He's essentially like just doesn't exist on the field anymore. And Justin Turner has to run back to first, uh, which way he was doing. So if the ball gets caught, Turner probably makes it back to first fine. And then Bellinger just walks off the field. Like it's very unlikely that he would get in the way in that sense. Uh, Just really dumb the way that this happened. If you hit a home run, you should be able to do whatever you want. Like that goes for the bat flips. It goes for, yeah, just if you hit a home run, have fun with it. That's, that's my general sentiment. But alas, we avoid the dark side or the boring side of baseball as much as we can and try and enjoy the fun. Uh, and so there's going to be a million baseball games every day from now until uh, September. So if you're a baseball fan, 
you got lots to enjoy. But that is it from me. We'll take a quick break and we will come back for some combat corner. All right. So we just wrapped up our baseball bit. And uh, speaking of out of left field, boy, did this news catch me by surprise. Nate Diaz is going to return to the octagon to fight Leon Edwards, who you may remember me talking about not too long ago, uh, who had his last fight end in a no contest after an eye poke. But this is a pretty unexpected, strange one. It's going to be a five-round co-main event, which I absolutely love at welterweight, of course, because Nate Diaz just doesn't cut weight these days. And it's a strange one because this win should, in my opinion, do absolutely nothing to bolster Leon Edwards' case for a title shot. Like, if you made Colby Covington versus Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, I would kind of pick the winner of that to get the next title shot over Edwards, who the one knock on his uh, current win streak resume is that he has no wins over like real welterweight top contenders. The only, the biggest one being RDA, which I don't want to look down on too much because Usman and Covington both have that. And in my opinion, Edwards like just bloodied RDA way better than the two of them did. But Still, you'd like to see a top five win in there. And uh, other than that, though, I think this is a W for everyone involved. Nate Diaz gets to get back in the uh, UFC picture and stay active. And this is the kind of fight he likes. He wants the guys who have been in there for a while, who fight a certain style of fight. And if you're the UFC, you're going to make money off this. It's going to be huge like Nate Diaz's last two fights have in Dana's own words moved the needle if you're Nate Diaz you have a very slim narrow chance to leapfrog into a UFC title shot which I think the UFC would be more than happy to grant him if uh, he somehow pulls out a W against Edwards and if you're Edwards you get to get back in there quickly which you want to do you get the biggest name for just name value on your resume you're gonna get a ton of eyeballs on you you're probably gonna still get a title shot after this win even despite what i said earlier um in his last fight that commentators said with every other breath when talking about him one win away from a title shot so here's a chance to get this win and uh, you've also got the chance to make Nate Diaz the two-time bloodiest motherfucker, BMF, which Jorge Masvidal awarded to him the first time. That's really how I see this fight going. Uh, Edwards, such a nasty clinch fighter with his elbows and short shots, uh, popping the jab, and Nate Diaz just has so much scar tissue. That's how his last fight ended. Maybe the UFC has like a nudge-nudge, wink-wink with the commission and the doctor, which... We'll talk a little about this more as we go on, but that's the reality of the UFC, more of a business than a sport. And this is a business fight. And Nate Diaz with the scar tissue, it just doesn't take much to open him up and get him bleeding. And Leon Edwards has this style of fight. So without a doctor who is in the know on that situation, I can see this one going very similar to Nate Diaz's last fight where he kind of just gets the pe- the piss beaten out of him for a couple rounds and then the doctor has to stop it because there's just 
too much blood and cuts over the eyes, but we'll see this UFC 262. Yeah, UFC 262 shaping up to be a great card with uh, the UFC light- lightweight title shot. Now this is the co-main event. We got uh, Ferguson Dariush. I'm getting hyped for this one. In other matchmaking news, um, Kevin Holland getting right back in there, stepping in on short notice to replace the injured Darren Till on the April 10th fight card against uh, Marvin Vittori, which is just a huge opportunity for Kevin Holland to 180 his trajectory. I mean, he talked about feeling too small for the division. One of the advantages of that is you can take a short notice fight like this. The UFC loves a good company, man. And a win here puts him ahead of where he was before the Brunson shot, let alone where he is right now. If you're Derek Brunson, I wonder if you were offered this fight and how you feel about that. And if you're Marvin Vittori, I wonder how you're going to approach this because we saw a hole in Holland's game his last time out. He is lacking a bit of strength in those close, like, um, body lock takedown situations to fight them off. And I think Marvin Vittori is going to have that advantage as well. He's the only middleweight that's ever taken and held Izzy down for an extended period of time, winning around off him in that manner. So, you know the grappling was already there years ago. Um, if it needs any more credentials, then hanging out in the guard of Jack Hermanson is no easy feat. Ask Kelvin Gaslam, ask David Price how that goes. So I'm going to be curious to see if Marvin Vittori comes out with like a more maverick, like chip on his shoulder, angry style to looking to knock Holland out, which might give Holland a chance, or if he just looks to replicate Derek Brunson's performance, especially on short notice, play it safe, just get the W and then move on. Um, it's it's going to be tough for him because Izzy's been very vocal about not being interested in uh, Vittori. He really wanted Till, but with Till out, this puts a lot more eyeballs on the Gaslam-Whitaker fight, which happens the next week. I mean, if either one of those guys have an impressive showing, I think Gaslam has an argument based on how their first fight went. Whitaker has the strongest argument just in how he's looked, like stopping contenders and not stopping, but beating contenders and Till and Cannoneer. One more impressive win for Whitaker, and he's probably got the title shot in the bag. So Marvin Vittori going to be under a lot of pressure to make a statement here and do it on short notice. Kevin Holland with a huge opportunity. And in my eyes, Robert Whitaker, probably the biggest winner of this because if Vittori plays it safe and Whitaker has a good showing, then he probably gets the next title shot. But then the biggest news in MMA this week for me has been the ongoing situation with John Jones and the Francis Ngannou matchup, which... <laughs> I have no idea what way the wind's blowing on this or where it's going to go. In a sense, it really hasn't moved on from where it was a year ago. I guess a little less than a year ago, right after uh, Nganu knocks out uh, Rosenstrike, John Jones says, let me at this guy. Like, let's make a super fight. He wants to get paid. The UFC does not want to pay him. Fast forward to today and that, seems to be more or less where we're at. We're getting a little more specific on numbers. Uh, 
he we do hear a lot about uh the situation from john jones's twitter feed which again this is such a not yet a major sport which is something i want to return to one more time before i wrap up this segment but like the articles on this from like mma journalism are really just a compilation of uh john jones's tweets with a little bit of analysis here and there but he tweeted out that he's saying no to eight to ten million and waiting for an offer to come through and hoping it is higher than those low balls which from a ufc relative point sounds kind of crazy at first just in that unless your name is Conor McGregor, Nate Diaz, or uh, Jorge Masvidal, you just don't make that kind of money, especially not in base pay. And and so much of the pay is behind the scenes. We might hear about their base pay, but we don't hear about pay-per-view buy numbers. So like from official sources, so we don't hear about how much of those pay-per-view buys fighters get. But what we do hear a little more off the record is not encouraging. And for John Jones, he's saying, look, this is a super fight. This is Deontay Wilder versus Tyson Fury, the rematch. This is Andy Ruiz Jr. versus Anthony Joshua, the rematch. And if you look at those fights, the fighters made life-changing money. I mean, Andy Ruiz Jr. off of one win in boxing, able to buy a fleet of Rolls Royces. Um, Deontay Wilder guaranteed $5 million before they know a thing about the pay-per-view buys. And then later on, when they get some more data, both fighters guaranteed $25 million for a fight that did about $1.2 million pay-per-view buys. So this, in terms of moving the needle, in terms of stakes, in terms of hype, that's where this fight is. So I think John Jones... I. Again, when I talk about John Jones and pay, I bracket everything else I think about John Jones, but this fight is in that ballpark, and that's what a guy deserves to be paid in this situation, really. Um, I mean, Dana's constantly like, "What? do you know what he's asking for? Do you know what kind of money John Jones is demanding for this fight? And it's like, okay, well, what kind of money are you going to make? Because if this fight does a million pay-per-view buys before we even get into sponsorships and gate revenue, which is back now, that's $70 million. So you talk about major sporting leagues, what do players make? 50%. So $25 million off of $70 million in just pay-per-view buys, again, before we get even get into sponsorships, the, the Venom, the Modelo, the Smirnoff, the so many sponsorships um it seems totally reasonable and i my intuition sends how this plays out says john jones does not get this kind of money he wants because the ufc has other heavyweight options to feed to nganu for title shots and john jones has bulked up and isn't in a state to return to light heavyweight so it's either Take another heavyweight fight that isn't in Ganu for way less money than you've got your eyeballs on. Take a low ball fight offer for Nganu or don't fight. So I feel like the UFC has all the leverage. And just when I'm feeling like that, John Jones puts out a last minute April Fool's tweet saying, like, had a great dinner with Dana, ready to move on, reminds everyone it's not yet midnight on April Fool's. 
but then Dana White comments on the tweet saying, like, great talk, brother. So wrapping up this segment with a little bit of hope, I I can't, Dana White doesn't seem like the kind of guy to do that sort of April Fool's stuff, but I guess you never know. I don't know. I, I guess I wanted to say one more time, though, um, as much as I love MMA, as much as it is my favorite sport to follow it is not a professional sport in the league of the mlb the nfl the nhl the nba the mls the european soccer leagues until you don't have fighters living paycheck to paycheck fighters are getting 50 percent, and really the only way that's probably going to happen is fighter unions because as long as they can divide these fighters up oh john jones you want like eight to ten million and you're saying no to that, well, we'll just offer Derek Lewis $5 million and he'll take that, so we can just skip out. Um, that's the state of MMA and UFC right now, and it will probably continue to be, which is horribly depressing, and that's where we're going to wrap up this segment. And we're back for some talking hockey. Uh, we had the Leafs and Jets, another 1-2 matchup in the North Division on Wednesday night, and we will get Yet another match uh, tonight on 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 TV, and yeah, it it's been another crazy week in the North Division. A lot of the top teams in action, but of course, we have the COVID scares looming. Uh, Vancouver and Calgary postponed a couple of days ago due to the COVID nineteen uh, virus, and Montreal coming off a, a pretty long rest, waiting for all of their contract contact tracing to come back negative uh they smashed the oilers on tuesday um but first we're going to talk leafs and jets because it was a great game for the toronto maple leafs a uh, really solid defensive performance jack campbell quietly is seven and zero and oh on the season uh and the leafs really like another game where it just you can tell it they may not always get the results, but seemingly this season, the Leafs have distanced themselves from the Jets and Oilers. Just the level of play seems to consistently be higher from this team. They have more energy. They'll have more zone time. And of course, they'll have lapses, which has led to some of these mistakes and errors. But for the most part, they seem to be the top team in this division. Uh, and this was just another example of that. Obviously, the Jets lose Blake Wheeler early, which was a huge loss for them. And Shifley had to play a lot in this game. But uh, the Leafs came out really hot. And Zach Hyman, I think defenders have nightmares about him when they go to sleep at night because he is everywhere and he just harasses you until you give him the puck. And then he's going to turn around and find Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner, John Tavares, William Nylander, which is a nightmare in itself. Uh, and, and he's just awesome. And two quick goals because of his efforts. And uh, he's able to get one himself. And uh, that had the Leafs off on a great path the entire game. Um, they score and they, they draw three power plays, which the power play needs to get tweaked again because it hasn't looked that good. I just think it needs a little bit more movement. Uh, one of the power plays coming from the goal, the second goal being challenged and, and it not being overturned. And so uh, they give up another power play for that. But uh, yeah, it was an awesome first period and really set the tone for the rest of the game. I, the big thing I wanted to talk about even more so than the game was after that first period with power plays being three, nothing after this Tim Peel ordeal, 
my brain now is looking, yeah. it's analyzing for what is going to happen. It's that second period. You're going, okay, boys, move your feet, keep your sticks down. They're going to be looking to call one to balance it out, which I had never even thought about before, but now it's there. And it happens in that second. I think it was kind of just your average run of the mill uh, stick gets up on one of the guys at the blue line. It wasn't the, it wasn't the Muzzin one where he caught Shifley in the face. It was the yeah. one before yeah. it was just like a quick slash on hands, but arm goes up and then it felt a little bit weak, but that is the thing. Now they balance it out and it was, I hadn't noticed it before, but now it seems really, really uh, relevant. Yeah. I, I kind of groaned when that uh, coach's challenge was overturned and I saw we had a power play. I'd forgotten about that rule, but it was, oh boy, we've got a struggling power play. And now we're going to be up three, nothing in power plays. You know, the refs are going to deal that out. I thought they were calling soft all night. I, the Leafs even had a power play before that. I think it was strange. They called it a slash. It looked like a soft hook to me. Um, and then even a high sticking they called against the jets. It was like the the shaft of a stick as opposed to the blade and it was like just off the chin which i feel like most times the refs just play on but yeah you can tell they're dialed in and just looking to make sure the jets fans like the tweediest of tweeters in jets land aren't going to be like upset about that call going under the radar when um the power play differential is three nothing Although this one time it did work out in our favor with Alexander Kerfoot, who's quietly been one of my favorite Leafs this season. Just he's been so good everywhere he plays. I mean, he does, he did. I loved him on that second line with Tavares and Nylander. That third line was money for a bit with uh, whether you play him with Mikheyev, with Engvall, with Hyman. And now he's playing between the vets at the moment, but he kills penalties. Great. He's speedy. He's got grit. He goes really hard and he's got some goal scoring touch. That was a beautiful shot on Hellebuck to seal a breakaway goal. Yeah. I think the biggest thing with Kerfoot or the biggest downside would be how much he's getting paid. And for what he has been giving the Leafs this season, 3.5 million is, is pretty high. And it throws him into that Kapanen and Janssen range. And I think that's why his name has been thrown around so many times uh, coming up to this trade deadline. Because if the Leafs are going to make an acquisition, they have to send salary back the other way. And he's the guy that makes the most, that provides similar to the rest of those bottom six. So um, I, I love Kerfoot too. And I think he's got a little bit of that sandpaper too. Not necessarily like the big hitter, but just a pest. Um, and you really need those guys come playoff time. So the Leafs got to make sure they're getting something really good back if they're thinking about moving him because, uh, yeah, he's 3.5 is a lot, but the way he's been playing this season, it's been really solid for, for a top nine guy. Um, and I've liked what I've seen out of him. I guess moving on to the power play <laughs> because the, the Jets scored uh, right after, but – uh, penalty penalty kills been pretty good on the season. It's, it's always going to be around average when you don't really have a center <laughs> on your penalty kill unit. Jason Spezza will take draws and then skate off the ice. Uh, but the Leafs power play, it, it has been struggling. I think they're one for 26 in their last 26, or maybe it's not that bad, but I heard it was it's a like really bad for 19 stat. in there right now or something. 
Yeah. Okay. So then one for 26 would make sense. Yeah. Um, it's just very stagnant. The puck goes across, it goes around the horn at the top, just back and forth, back and forth, like a pendulum. Uh, and the goalie and the defense just slide their sticks back and forth. Like it, even if they work it down low, it's never seeming threatening. Um, the, they've had some trouble with the break-ins, but they're always going to have trouble with the break-ins when they just are consistently committed to that drop pass that they do. It's more when they get the puck in the zone, guys have to be moving. Like one of the things that Matthews was doing really early in the season was when he got passed the puck to Morgan Riley at the point, he would wheel back up to the blue line and then start coming in with speed. So even that small thing, right? It just changes the angle. It gives him a wider view when he's coming in from a little bit higher and it gives him momentum so that if he decides to shoot, he can get more on it. Uh, and just doing even small things like that. I just think him and Marner like need to get a little bit going. Like the guy who does it the best is Patrick Kane on the power play. Whenever he circles back up and gets the puck going towards the net, it is frightening sight. Um, and so I'd like to see a little bit more from those guys. Obviously, uh, you can mix it up trying Thornton, Simmons, Nylander, Tavares, all those different guys in those low positions or in front of the net. Yeah, because I think it needs to get some tweaking because right now it's just kind of sitting around the the top of the <laughs> blue line. And I think there just needs to be more action there. I don't know if you have any thoughts on the power play. Yeah. I, I thought they had it. I thought they finally, it's such a conundrum, right? Do you, do you just look for something ugly and just get pucks to the net? Cause that sometimes the puck will bounce your way. Sure. But sometimes it'll bounce the other team's way. And that's an easy put away 200 feet away and force you to reset. So I, I don't mind slowing the power play down, handling it on the blue line, building the confidence up and looking for that one perfect shot, which they did great on one of those three first period power plays. And I thought they finally had the goal. I think it was a Marner shot, one-timer right in the slot and Hellebuck just made a fantastic save to rob us and continue. So I personally don't mind going back to that let the second unit look for the dirty, greasy ones. And I like that Keith right now is, okay, our, our power play is not clicking. I'm not going to put Marner and Matthews out for a minute and 40 seconds and let them gas themselves. I'm five on five is going for us. It, it's funny. Early in the season, I felt like our power play was almost bailing us out. We were not getting enough five on five goals. And I was worried what happens when this cools down a little and you saw that in March, the special teams, I just remember a couple of games in that slump. We were not getting power play goals and we were getting badly outscored on our penalty kill. So the penalty kill has been shored up. The five on five is clicking. It feels like the power play is the last piece of the puzzle that needs to be solved. I Austin Matthews starting to find the scoring touch again is encouraging and makes me feel like it's just a matter of time before they get back to that perfect shot and it's not a former Vesna candidate making a stellar save, or maybe it's that second unit getting a greasy one and hopefully putting a little bit of pressure on that top unit. I'm, I'm not sure. I do feel like it's a matter of time. I, they've, we're on a three game winning streak before that Oilers loss. I didn't feel like the slump was completely over this game more encouraging getting the win in OT and other than a bit of a turtle shell third period, which is kind of to be expected against the team as good as the jets are um, a really dominant win. You think we can say the slump is over. 
I think so. I think the energy is back. Wayne Simmons was a big piece to come back because it's not even just the way he plays. I think the biggest thing that Wayne Simmons provides is that just all the guys on the rest of the team love playing with him. So there's just more energy when he's in the locker room. Uh, and you can see that on the ice. And I think a really big thing, right? He's 7-0, and but Jack Campbell, like they love playing in front of this guy. He is he is a gem. The hockey world loves him, no matter Leafs fans or not. He's just like the nicest guy ever. And the Leafs, they want to play for him and they want to win for him and they want to block shots for him. And I, I think that's a super underrated piece that's been happening right now. Freddie looks like he's going to be out for another week before he gets reassessed. At this point, it feels like he might just get buried on LTIR with the weight. Like, I don't know how serious this injury is, but it doesn't feel like he's coming back anytime soon. Uh, recent reports say that Kyle Dubas was in conversations with uh, Buffalo and Linus Allmark there has is his, uh, he has all seven of their wins, I think. And when he's not in net, Buffalo's like, oh, 16 and one or something. So Linus Allmark, like having a really solid year on a team that's been really bad. He's definitely a potential trade candidate. I think if the Leafs are, are struggling with what they should do with Anderson, I think that a goalie move is out there to have a tandem of Campbell and someone else because like, how can you avoid going with Campbell except for the fact that you worry about him getting injured? But besides that, he's been money every time he's been in the net and the guys love playing in front of him. And if he can continue to just give them – a shot they love playing for him and it's going to lead to results and I guess we'll see I don't know who will be starting tonight I don't know if they'll go back to Hutch I don't know if they'll go back to Campbell we might see Vevalainen's first look in the net but I I worry about relying on Hutch or Vevalainen as the backup there if Campbell gets hurt so I think a goaltending move is in the work for the Leafs getting as we get closer to the trade deadline yeah, you can't bank on uh, Jack Campbell's health based on how this season has gone. He really, you got, he, not, let alone back-to-backs, you haven't seen him be able to play a game, sit a day, and then play a game. Uh, his last, the win, first win over Edmonton, he then had to sit out the next day and they gave Hutch the start. So I, the health just has me too hesitant to say Campbell's the guy despite his phenomenal play so far. I, man, the the Buffalo move or a Buffalo trade with Anderson would be intriguing. I wonder if there'd be a way to finagle the cap space to pick up Hall for Anderson. But I don't know if Hall is what we need, though. That second line would be a flamethrower, though. I know, but Galchenyuk's been playing really well there. Yeah. Like it, it's it's almost again, it's it's a weird thing, but I think the top two lines operate when you have a guy willing to do the dirty work. Whereas if you have hall there, who's going to go in and, and dig the puck out for the two skill guys. Right. And obviously like Taylor hall is a, is a great player and he's got a lot of skill. I just don't know if that's what this team needs at this point. I think you, your top two priorities at the trade deadline have to be goaltending and it has to be just one more defenseman. It doesn't have to be a top tier defenseman, but it has to be a guy that you can trust in case Bro, a Brody goes down or a Riley goes down, God forbid, like a Muzzin or a Hall goes down, right? You need a guy to be able to plug into your top six uh, and not lose too much at the back end. Yeah, it's it's definitely a lower priority. I, I'm just, I love John Tavares's story, like this guy returning to Toronto, becoming the captain, and I want to see him succeed and blossom as much as he can. And I've, 
I just want whatever piece on that line is gonna make it as good as it can be because I do get a little fed up sometimes with the meat and dia narrative like non-stop talking Austin Matthews Austin Matthews Austin Matthews and then sprinkling Marner's name in there as well when we're going up against the Oilers and they're talking dry sidle and they need to add one more name to counterbalance on the Leafs and yeah I'm just one like I love what he's been doing defensively this season I just I, I wonder like does he need a playmaker because he doesn't quite like he needs something I feel like to get the goal scoring going because the skates just don't set him up for shooting positions the way Matthews Marner and Nylander can but I feel like if he had a guy who was wheeling and dealing a little better um, that one his goal scoring could get right back up there to where it was a couple of seasons ago but I do agree that a defenseman would be a higher priority and 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 I think even these last two games with Galchenyuk really playing a solid role. Again, I hesitate to say that this is what he's going to look like the rest of the season. But in these last two games, Tavares has really started to emerge because Galchenyuk is willing to throw the body around and do some of the dirty work, which has allowed Tavares a little bit more open ice. And and I've appreciated that from Galch. But uh, you make a great point about obviously Tavares has his best year when he's playing with Marner, a guy who can fly around and set anyone up, but. Uh, yeah, he, I think Galchenyuk is good there and you, you let him go for a bit because there's gotta be got ways to solve the offensive team with the amount of depth of forwards you have. Like Nick Robertson is, is getting ready to come back very shortly. He had a filthy snipe last night, uh, in his Marley's action. Um, like he, he could be maybe that the answer that we're looking for, right. Without having to make a trade. So definitely something to consider. All right. Enough Leafs talk. We will move into Montreal. Uh, yeah, that was poor. Uh, and we will talk about the seemingly turning around season of the Montreal Canadiens, who uh, had a very tough middle of the season. They make the coaching change, but they dominate the Ottawa Senators and the Oilers this week after a uh, delay in, in games due to COVID. And they still have, I believe it's 23 games to play in 40 nights to end the season. But uh, this team has an energy. Jake Allen's been solid his last couple starts. His save percentage is up to 9-2-2 now on the season. Uh, Victor Mete, who uh, had a really poor start to the season, has started to play better. His possession numbers are up. And and Philip Deneau, who hadn't, who hadn't scored in the first 24 games of the season has eight points in his last three games and uh, is a guy that they need to really be that top line center for them. And don't look now, but the, the Canadians three games in hand on the Leafs and are eight points back in the standings uh, and four games in hand on the Oilers and the jets and, and even closer to them. So the Canadians could jump a couple of spots in the standings here. If all is said and done, obviously, a ton of games in 40 nights might be a little bit counterintuitive to that, but if they're on a roll, look out, the Canadians are coming. LA, LA, LA. <laughs> uh, the story for me in these last two games has been the defense. I mean, some games you're going to get the depth scoring going, and that's been the case, putting up uh, nine goals in their last two from, I mean, Gallagher had a couple, you mentioned to know, Kakanyemi, just the whole roster stepping up. But I 
giving up uh, 17 shots against the Oilers and 23 against the Sens and very few of those shots coming from the slot when you look at the stats. So I think the story has been all defense this week in Montreal. And I think they've got a Leafs game coming up soon. It, it feels like the Leafs are always playing the number two contender. Like that role has just shifted nonstop between the Oilers, Jets, and Habs. Like whoever's up against the Leafs seems to have the momentum and be challenging for it. And That's, but that's what happens when you're the heavyweight champ, baby. You just got to keep taking the next challenger. <laughs> yeah, it's... I mean, Jake Allen, you mentioned doing great and Carey Price, maybe this is the defense he needs to give his numbers a bit of a boost and maybe his confidence as well. So eyes on for me, it's eyes on. Can they keep this defensive effort up, keep the like shots below 25, keep it limited to five or six shot attempt or shots on net from the slot? And uh, how does the depth scoring hold up? I, I feel like if they continue this momentum, the story isn't going to be a mid-season slump. It's going to be struggles to get the um, extra points in extra time because I, they must have eight or nine regulation losses or extra time losses at this point. If they'd won half of those, they'd be that much closer to first place. And that would really be the story of the season. So I think the tighter they make this and the more they continue this playing it that's really going to become the story just what if they had won a couple more shootouts and gotten a couple three on three goals this we'd be talking about them a whole lot different right now but all the momentum in Montreal yes and all without their top goal scorer Tyler Toffoli who will hopefully be coming back uh, before the end of the season. And of course, Eric Stahl waiting in the wings for his quarantine period to end uh, and enter the lineup. So good things ahead, hopefully for, or well, not for us, but <laughs> if you're a Montreal fan, good things ahead, hopefully for you guys. And uh, yeah, it will be a great playoff series in this North division, no matter what. It feels like those top four teams are slowly uh, like settling themselves in. We don't know what the order will be, but we kind of have our four. And a playoff series between in any of those matchups is going to be really, really fun to watch. So looking forward to that. Uh, and, and I don't know, Max, if you have anything left for that talking hockey segment. No, but, that's uh, all. Sweet. All right. We will take one more break and come back for some very quick notes on the NBA and, and wrap up the show. And we're back to wrap up the show with a bit of basketball talk. I don't know if the basketball interest is waning as the Raptor playoff hopes are waning or we're just at that midpoint in the season where the playoffs still feel a bit out of reach before that last push and the hype generates and it's just a little bit of a slump before we get there. What's going on? Yeah, usually post-trade deadline, the teams have all kind of settled in and they're about to make that run. Uh, but it's a couple weeks here where it's kind of like, okay, we know what the playoffs are going to start to look like now. Let's just get there. Uh, and so some of these games, while still intriguing, have just a little bit less oomph to them uh, right now in the season. So just less to talk about in general for me. Uh, I'm going to start with the Los Angeles Clippers signing DeMarcus Cousins to a 10-day contract. So they're going to give him a bit of a trout. He's now bounced around. He's now about to play for every team in the state of California. Um, he is a guy who at this point in his career is a stretch center who can, who has some decent playmaking, 
I think he's going to be abysmal on the defensive end. He's a big body, though, that you could throw at opposing centers. So ideally, if you're the Clippers, maybe he's a guy you can throw at Drummond. Maybe he's a guy that you can throw at DeAndre Ayton. Uh, Maybe he's a guy that you can throw at Rudy Gobert, and that's why they're giving him a shot because the centers in in the top of the Western Conference are, are big dudes who can take over a game. So that's why he's there. I don't think he's going to get a ton of play time because they have Zubac, who has been excellent. Uh, and, and he is, I think, a pretty underrated center in what he can provide. And, of course, you've still got Serge Ibaka, who gives up a little bit of size. But come playoff time, you know he can produce, uh, as he did for here in Toronto for quite a few years. So uh, interesting signing. I think it gets more news because of how big a name DeMarcus Cousins used to be with all the talent in the world that he had. Uh, but this would be interesting. They'll give him a look and see what he can provide. So honestly, wishing him the best of luck because he is a career, a, a very, it's a cautionary tale to all those guys where people are always saying, why don't you just take less and go on a team that wins? Uh, and then you can make your big money. Players always lock in the big money because you never know. You could be DeMarcus Cousins and have a bunch of debilitating injuries that really has cost him millions of dollars over his career. Uh, so best of luck to him. I hope he makes that team because he's had to go through it and, and, uh, yeah, just looking for guys to have success. The other, uh, NBA news I want to talk about was just, (laughs) it always seems like Luka Doncic hits the most backbreaking shots against the Boston Celtics. It's the second time these teams have matched up this season. Luka with some just crazy step back threes over Kemba Walker, over Jason Tatum, Uh, He had seven threes in the game and was really fantastic. And it looks like he's gearing up to have a a magical Luka magic run. Uh, As we head towards the playoffs, the Mavericks have struggled to find their kind of top five that they're going to run as a starting five. And, and uh, of course, trading for JJ Redick and Nicola Melli gives them some more shooting options that they can run out there. And uh, yeah, it, it, this team will go as far as Luka can take them. I think they're still a little bit undersized and, and going to struggle defensively against some of the other top teams in this conference. But, hey, they took the Clippers to six last year, and they are a team that no one would want to play in the first round because of the potential that Luka has. So just going to be fun to watch them down the stretch. LaMarcus Aldridge made his debut for the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, I saw a highlight where he had a nice post fadeaway and – that is what I think he'll provide. Obviously, in the last podcast, I was skeptical about the signing, and I wasn't sure what he did for them. But listening to some of the people, some of other takes, and and really breaking down what I see from his game is, he is a guy who you can play for four minutes at a time in like two quarters, where he'll go in, and if there's a mismatch, he's just gonna put up buckets on them. Right? He's still a guy with very little defensive upside but he's a guy that you could throw the ball to in the post and he's going to create a shot for you. And, and not a lot of, there's not a lot of guys like that in the league anymore. And so it just gives Brooklyn a different look to see, okay, maybe uh, this team is going small, trying to match up with our top guys. Let's bring in LaMarcus Aldridge. Who's just going to bully uh, an undersized power forward and, and put up like eight straight points because they don't have an answer. And then they'll have to make their adjustments. We make ours. Uh, and just still unstoppable on the offensive end. So I think that is a valuable little uh, thing that Brooklyn can throw at other teams. And obviously, 
Aldridge, I'm sure, was starting to conserve himself because he knew he wanted to leave San Antonio. And so I'm sure he's got a little bit more left in the tank, similar to Blake Griffin, than what we were seeing earlier in the season. The last thing I want to say is uh, <laughs> Toronto Raptors, man. I just have to talk about them. I, I really don't want to. Aaron Baines is, has been just brutal this season. They, they really need to get a center. Um, another disappointing loss to basically a G League team in the Oklahoma City Thunder who were running guys out there without Lou Dort, without Shea Gelgis-Alexander, without Al Horford, kind of their top three players, and, and the Raptors just couldn't get it done. Lowry situation, uh, I think he's got a foot infection now, which is kind of frightening. Um, and, well, I would hate to say this, but it almost feels like a little like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Hey, Kyle, you want to just sit out a little bit longer. Let's make sure you're healed so that you can either get paid by someone else or we bring you back next season. We have a pretty good draft pick. We're going to make a run at it again next year. Uh, it feels kind of bad to say because obviously, Kyle, you know, he wants to play every game. But from the Raptors' perspective, if you can keep him out and make sure he's healing as long as possible, then you have better chances at, at one of those picks. And they are, I think there's like three teams in the East behind them, all with one less win. So if they can just lose a couple more games, <laughs> they'll have pretty good shot at, at a top three pick in the lottery. And uh, while it would suck for a season to go out like this, again, I just keep saying it. This is a write-off year. You cannot expect anything from a team that's had to move uh, in, to an entire new city and do entire new processes and lose their two most important like centers at the defensive end. So Raptors, uh, keep fighting, keep developing. But uh, if you lose tonight against Golden State, not a problem, my, my guys. Just keep falling down those standings. We're tanking. For uh, Evan Mobley, I think would be the perfect guy, but I, I you can't get your hopes up too much. <laughs> Man, it's just the question is like this for the most part is a core that's ready to put it on now, and I don't I don't know if a center power forward out of the draft is going to be ready to contribute in the way that we need them to um, with like Pascal OG and Fred I and maybe 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 we get Lowry for one more season I I wonder what kind of production or hope they could get out of the draft realistically to contribute next season and if not what can they do to make sure they have that piece so we don't have to repeat this season yeah yeah I mean at the very minimum it's a piece you could move for someone who's unhappy in the off season, like a Bradley Beal, or uh, I don't know, whoever else you would want to mention, but yeah, it's, it's never a bad thing. If you don't, if you know, you don't have a shot really at, at a making a deep playoff run anymore, and you're falling deeper into those uh, standings and moving up on the lottery odds, never a bad thing from a long-term perspective. And while of course the guys want to win now, Freddie, OG Pascal, they're still all under 28 years old. So you still got like three, four, five year windows with these guys. Um, and and other pieces that you could put around Gary Trent, of course, with his career high with the Raps, 31 against Oklahoma City, flashing some potential there, uh, which is really exciting. And he's a guy that a couple of years from now, you we could be saying, How did the Raptors manage to swing for this guy? Right. So 
they've got the young pieces now to really build around. Like the average core of this team now is really young, despite them have all having already won a championship and being in win now mode, they are still young. And so if you get a guy like Mobley or even like falling down the draft, I don't know, like a Jalen Green, uh, Kuminga, a Corey Kispert, even it's, it's a guy that you can plug in and still fits their timeline. Uh, if it's a four or five year window. Yeah. Not to mention, we talked at the start of this season about uh, the timelines we saw for the development of uh, OG and Pascal saying, when you look at Malachi, that's what's realistic to expect. So hopefully he's kind of sunk a little back under the radar to, we were hoping like we were going to get this defensive point guard stud to just come in there and help. But maybe not next season, but the season after is when we really start to see uh, that stock pop back up as well. Awesome. Well, I'm going to have one more note on the NCAA. Of course, we've got the final four coming up. Uh, should be awesome couple of games, Baylor, Houston, and, and UCLA versus Gonzaga. It seems like we are on a collision course between Baylor and Gonzaga, the top two teams in the nation ranked one and two coming in. Uh, and of course, this was a game that was scheduled very early on in the college basketball season that everyone had circled on their calendar and then got postponed due to COVID-19. It was a game that I was settling in to watch. One of the few college basketball games I watched during the regular season, I was sitting down around 1230 to watch it. And it came through that it had been uh, canceled due to contact tracing. So we have not got to see this matchup, but these two are the best two teams. And it really feels like this is going to be our national championship, which is what people have been waiting for for a couple months. So pretty intriguing storyline there. Uh, two teams that are just really, really solid. And the top guy left in, that you're going to want to watch is, is Jalen Suggs. And uh, I guess Corey Kispert, too, could end up being a top 10 pick. So these Gonzaga kids definitely have your eye on them as we get closer to the NBA draft. All righty. Uh, that wraps it up. For basketball, if you are not living in Ontario, feel free to check out now at this point because I'm going to talk about a pretty interesting concept that has been come that has been created by Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment, which is the company that owns and operates the Leafs, the Raptors, uh, the Toronto FC of the MLS, and the Toronto Argonauts of the CFL. They have just recently relaunched on the uh, individual teams' apps the Digital Arena. And so this is pretty interesting. I downloaded it. I was using it during the Leafs game on Wednesday night, but it's essentially this platform that you can log into on the Leafs app uh, and you can participate in a global chat. So all the Leafs fans who have that app are all chatting within it. It's heavily moderated, of course. Uh, not a lot of negative energy there. It's a lot of people who are very happy, which doesn't seem like Leafs Nation. Uh, they do trivia contests and they do giveaways throughout the entire game. So I saw people winning real sports gift cards. I saw people winning jerseys, things like that. Um, and they also do what are, they also, you can see like the live Jumbotron feed at games. So just an, a cool little interactive thing. They're looking to implement, like you can private message other fans. So just trying to like make new friends uh, right now in this virtual world, just kind of a cool thing to get fans interacting with the game while they're watching it. Uh, so that way, you know, like during a commercial break, you can go and do trivia on your phone that's being run by the Toronto Maple Leafs or the Toronto Raptors. And, and I think San Antonio has invested in this, so they might be bringing it to 
to the Spurs. And I think there was one other team that also, it might've been the Los Angeles Clippers were looking into doing this as well. So MLSC ahead of the rest of the, uh, the country and North America in terms of providing that engaging experience to their fans. So I thought that was cool uh, with a Toronto franchise leading the way uh, and thought some, something I should bring up because it is relative or it is relevant for the sports industry that we love and, and follow so closely. Yeah, for sure. Sounds a little cheesy to me, but yeah. Hey, it only sounds cheesy until you win one of those Austin Matthews jerseys. Am I right? Yes. That is true, and I <laughs> yeah. am happy to be swayed on that. <laughs> All right, that does it for me. Uh, thanks so much, everyone, for wa- for watching, for listening, for tuning in. Uh, we really appreciate it. We hope you have an excellent Easter weekend. Uh, I know that I will be going into a chocolate coma from these massive Easter bunnies that I was able to procure. Uh, it's going to be a delicious and uh, <laughs> honestly a pretty quiet weekend. You miss the days of the Easter egg hunts, but what can you do? Uh, This will be the second Easter now that has kind of been affected by the pandemic, but you just got to make the most of it. Uh, So hopefully everyone's staying safe, uh, staying home, and and we can provide a little bit of that entertainment. Max? Yeah, happy Judas kiss to all our listeners. (laughs) Uh, Sports Next Door signing off.